Tammy is here for our children. If they would like to meet her in the back and she will get them Bible bags and binders for service. We live in a world of brokenness and destroyed relationships. That's not really a surprise to anyone here um, based on news stories and um, the things that we read in the paper, things that we hear on TV, even the things we've talked about this morning. It seems like division is more common than unification, or at least it's more newsworthy. And it's really easy to get caught up in the idea that brokenness and destruction and division are inevitable. It's easy to become cynical and bitter. And this morning we have to come back to God's story to be reminded that we live a different identity. We live in a different world than the one that's portrayed by the media. This morning we're reading the end of Joseph's story. It's not quite how I would recommend that you read a novel or even how you read a history book. And it's certainly not the best way to understand who we are as the people of God. I recommend that you read the whole thing in Genesis. But the end of the story is where the lectionary takes us. Two weeks ago, we read the prologue. We read of Jacob working for 14 years to earn the hands of his wives, Leah and Rachel, who would together give birth to his 12 sons. Last week, we read chapter 5 of the story, Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt out of jealousy over their father's favoritism. And this week, we get the conclusion. And we'll fill in some of the other details along the way. So take your Bibles and open with me to Genesis chapter 45. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. 
I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning, we see a different story than what we see around us often. Lord, this morning we see our own story, our own history, our own identity as your people. And this morning, Lord, we want to be formed and shaped by your word. So speak to us this morning. Amen. In the conclusion to Joseph's story, we see a dramatic story of reconciliation between brothers and the restoration of relationships. We see Joseph tell his brothers that though they sold him into slavery, God sent him into Egypt ahead of them. We see grown men weeping together. And it's easy to be caught up in the drama of the story, this generous granting of forgiveness. It's easy to walk away remembering only the platitude that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, if all we know is this conclusion, we see in Joseph a man who meets his brothers who sold him into slavery and then weeps when he meets them. He doesn't ask any questions about whether they're sorry for what they've done. There's no acknowledgement of sin on anyone's part. He simply rejoices that the family is restored then brings everyone to Egypt, gives them land, and takes care of their families and flocks. Unquestioning forgiveness and unspeakable generosity. It's the story of a man whose actions are not easy to emulate. And we could easily be forgiven if we walked away from Joseph's story believing that, well, it's a nice story, but it doesn't really have much to do with us. But this is actually a much more complicated story. It's not an easy story. This reconciliation is difficult. It requires significant transformation on the part of Joseph and his brothers, and it requires that Joseph has a much bigger understanding of the work of God in the world. By the time Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph has been gone for 22 years, and he's a different man than the proud, brash 17-year-old who arrived in Egypt. God was with that teenage Joseph, giving him dreams and giving him their interpretation and honoring his honesty. And one of the pieces of good news for us is that God wasn't done with this 17-year-old. Even though Joseph's life gets turned upside down, God is with him. And God teaches Joseph a few lessons in humility and wisdom along the way. First, Joseph gets sold as a slave. He loses his autonomy, he loses his family, he loses his country. He becomes a foreigner in a strange land, and he'll never again go home. But as a slave, God is still with him. And God 
blesses Joseph so that Joseph gets put in charge of everything in the captain of the guard's home. And we're told that his owner does not worry about anything that Joseph oversees because the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. This becomes the pattern of Joseph's life in Egypt. When he maintains his honesty and his integrity and refuses to sleep with his owner's wife, she lies to her husband and has Joseph thrown in prison. His integrity cost him even whatever autonomy he had as a servant. But God is with him in prison as well, and Joseph gets put in charge of all the other prisoners. And we're again told that the captain of the jail worries about nothing as long as Joseph is in charge. And then when Joseph is given the interpretation to two fellow prisoners' dreams, he asks the prisoner that he would be remembered when the person, prisoner's life and position are restored. Perhaps Joseph could then be freed from prison. Instead, the prisoner forgets Joseph. And Joseph is left in prison for an additional two years before God finally gives him the interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams, and he's released and put in charge of Pharaoh's household. It would be quite easy in Pharaoh's place to be hardened, jaded, angry, and bitter. He's literally lost everything he's had multiple times. His integrity has caused him grief, not earned him respect. Nothing can replace the family that he's lost. But through all of his struggles, God has made it clear to Joseph that he's not alone and he's not abandoned. Over and over, God blesses Joseph in the midst of his struggles, and Joseph repeatedly references God throughout his story. God has been present, and he's been working on and working through Joseph for over two decades. And Joseph is now a man who is capable of walking through, with God through any circumstance. And he understands that those circumstances don't determine what God is doing or God's ability. Joseph is softer, less boastful, and more restrained. He has more wisdom. He understands better how and when to speak and act and he's been given God's wisdom to care for the region during a very severe famine. Joseph has been transformed through a life of walking with God. It's easy in our world to believe that transformation is impossible. Our pop culture is fixated on this idea of stark realism that we see in our movies and TV shows. It seems to be a virtue to portray that life is hopeless and nothing can change to tell us about all of the difficulties of life and nothing good. We get told that no, nobody's perfect, and the best that we can do is the best that we can do. So we should be gentle with ourselves in our struggles and in our imperfections and realize that it's really just part of the human condition. There's nothing really to be done about it. There's not a lot of hope in this philosophy. We're doomed to be the way that we are. And if we can't change, 
reconciliation between people really isn't possible either because nothing will be different the next time around. So why try? How depressing. The story of Joseph teaches us a different truth. The truth that God is never done with us and that he works to change us even in our struggles and even in our sins and to transform those blemishes into the virtues that honor God greatly. It's not easy. And it wasn't easy for Joseph. He lost a lot in that process. But he emerged a very different man. One capable of the reconciliation that we see in the conclusion to his story. Reading the story, I'm reminded of Lemez and the interactions between Javert and Jean Valjean. Javert is the perfect example of our culture's expectations. All that he can see in Valjean is a thief. He sings at one point, You must think me mad. I've followed you across the years. Men like you can never change. In contrast, Bishop Bienvenu understands that transformation can occur when the chains of hatred, mistrust, and anger are removed from a person's life. In Hugo's book, he describes the bishop this way. They had a bishop whose center of gravity was a compassionate God, attuned to the sounds of suffering, never repelled by deformities of body and soul, who occupied himself by dispensing balm and dressing wounds wherever he found them. Bishop Bienvenu conferred dignity with abandon on those whose dignity was robbed by others. So when the bishop hosts Valjean for a night and is repaid by Valjean, sealing his silver, he refuses to condemn Valjean when he is caught and brought back before the bishop. Instead, he asks Valjean why he forgot the most expensive pieces, the silver candlesticks, and hands them over to the thief. And the bishop's actions lead to a total transformation of Valjean. Les Mis is a story of redemption. It reflects the truth we find in Joseph's story that we can be transformed. So some 22 years later in Joseph's story, this transformed man is changed enough that he is able to see the hand of God at work in his suffering and then offer reconciliation to those who had a hand in his suffering. Joseph's transformation makes the reconciliation possible, but it doesn't make it easy. This is the other piece that we're missing if we skip to the conclusion. We're missing all of the intervening actions between Joseph and his brothers and his brothers and his father. After seven years of plenty revealed by Pharaoh's dreams, the seven years of famine begin. And Jacob sends Joseph's brothers, minus his only full brother Benjamin, to buy food in Egypt. This isn't actually a friendly visit. Joseph treats his brothers like strangers, even though he recognizes them. He speaks harshly to them, accuses them of being spies, and has them all thrown in prison. Joseph might have been transformed, but it's not really easy to look into the eyes 
of those who caused his suffering and sold him into slavery. After three days, Joseph releases his brothers from prison, saying that he fears God, so he can't just cast them aside. And his brothers tell each other that they are paying the penalty for selling Joseph. They say, we saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They also have been changed over these 22 years. They now see error in their ways. And this is the first time that we see Joseph soften towards his brothers. Because Joseph speaks to his brothers through an interpreter, they don't know that he can understand them. But he does, and upon hearing their comments, he has to excuse himself because he goes and weeps. And then instead of imprisoning all but one of his brothers, he changes his mind. And he sends nine of the ten back to his father and keeps only one as a guarantor to bring Benjamin back and prove that his family's okay. He sends them home with grain, with provisions for their journey, and he even takes the money that they used to pay for the grain and returns it to their sacks. The reconciliation that we read is actually what takes place during the brothers' second visit to Egypt. After much debate with their father and the guarantees of both Reuben and Judah that they'll bring Benjamin home safely, the brothers return to Egypt to buy more food. And they bring a gift for Joseph. As they sit down to a meal in Joseph's house, Joseph sees Benjamin for the first time. And he has to turn away again to weep at seeing his brother in his presence. But before our happy ending, Joseph sets his brother Benjamin up as a thief. So when the brothers leave and head back home, Joseph has his own silver cup put in Benjamin's sack and then sends his steward after the brothers to bring back the one who's now a thief, who actually hadn't stolen anything. When the brothers return, Joseph accuses them of theft and proclaims that the one in whose bag the cup was found, his brother Benjamin, the one that his father almost refused to let come, will become his slave. It's at this point that Judah steps up and he pleads for Benjamin's release and he offers himself as Joseph's slave instead. Judah's argument centers around Jacob's love for his son, Benjamin, and the pain that it will cause his father to lose Benjamin in addition to Joseph, the only two sons of his wife, Rachel. Judah's speech is Joseph's breaking point. Hearing about his father, father's suffering makes him lose control of his emotions, and he sends all of his attendants away before he reveals his identity to his brothers. This is the reconciliation we see in our conclusion. It's been a long time in coming, and it involves plenty of regret on the part of Joseph's brothers, plenty of pain for his father, and some manipulation and turbulent emotions for Joseph. It's not easy. It involves acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It involves conflict of emotions. And yet God's presence and transformation have made it possible. Joseph is a different man. His brothers are different men. And Joseph understands the bigger picture of God's work 
in the world. He's able to see that even in the worst circumstances and the worst actions, that God acted, that God redeemed. And he tells them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Then Joseph and Benjamin embrace and weep, and all of the brothers talk for the first time in decades. You see, reconciliation is hard. It took a lot for Joseph to forgive his brothers, and it's not an immediate decision on his part. I wonder if his brothers were afraid of what would happen when Joseph revealed who he was, especially given the time they'd spent in prison and the accusations of theft against them. I wonder what Jacob thought when his brothers went home to get him and had to tell him that his son actually wasn't dead. He was in Egypt. He'd been sold there by them. I wonder what in the world the brothers were thinking as they had to approach Jacob, whether they debated not saying anything. Life with God isn't easy. I imagine that Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers would all have chosen quite a different path if the choice was up to them. It's hard to deal with our past, with our own pain, the things we've done, things done to us with our failures, our sins. It's hard to wrestle through our brokenness and deal with hard conversation and truth and reconciliation in relationships. And it's definitely hard to let go of the wrongs people have done to us for the sake of reconciliation, love, and God's work in the world. I don't know about you, but I want to live in the world of Joseph and Bishop Bienvenu and Valjean. I want to set aside the stark realism that the world says is the truth and allow the story of God to be my identity. I want redemption in my life. I want redemption in our world. I want my greatest sins and my biggest flaws and the hardest struggles of my life to be transformed by God into the virtues and things that he uses for his greatest glory. If it wasn't easy for Joseph, I can't expect it to be easy for me or for you. But 22 years from now, four or five decades from now, I want to have walked with God in a way that life doesn't look the same. I want to live in a world where I and we are willing to work through problems for the sake of relationship instead of throwing relationship after relationship away when it becomes difficult. I want to be stronger together because we see God working in our world. And because we are willing to forgive the sins of others, because we also know how many sins we need to be forgiven of. So how about you? Are you willing to do the hard work of being transformed by God? Are you willing to forgive because you have been forgiven? Which world do you want to live in? Hopeless realism or the story of God?